Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Personalization Outbreak Podcast, your go-to podcast for meaningful conversations with influential leaders from different sectors every week. Now, our guest this week comes from the healthcare sector. Deanna Minus Vincent currently serves as the Executive Vice President, Chief Social Justice and Accountability Officer at RWJ Barnabas Health. Now, in this role, Deanna works across the system with internal and external stakeholders to co-design strategies that improve health outcomes, promote health equity, and eliminate health disparities. Now, as you'll see in our discussion, Deanna is on the front line of solving for social disparities to bring equality to healthcare. She's breaking down standardized barriers with proven data and real examples to show how much social injustice, especially racism, has impacted healthcare in the United States. Now, during our conversation, we'll talk about the importance of expanding the definition of health and how we seek and treat patients as partners and co-designers of their own treatment. We'll also discuss the importance of diversity and inclusion in the healthcare system to build healthier communities. In fact, Deanna was one of our 30 thought leaders that participated as a speaker in my organization's 2021 Leadership in the Age of Personalization Summit that was held on October 21st, where we asked leaders to explore the ways that we can unleash individuality by interrupting our assumptions about who belongs where, doing what, and how. Now, if you'd like to watch the 2021 Summit on Demand, you can register free at 2021 Summit ageofpersonalization.com. So before we get started, please make sure to hit the like button below, share it with your colleagues, and subscribe to our YouTube channel and social media at Glenn Yopi so that you can be in touch with our most recent content about leadership in the age of personalization. Let's get started. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Welcome to the show, Deanna. Great to have you. Thank you so much for having me, Glenn. I really um, want to thank you for taking the time to learn a little bit about the work that I'm doing at the system. Absolutely, Deanna. Well, you know, before we talk about the system, let's learn about you because in the age of personalization, it's about getting to know the individual. So it's clear from your background, uh, Deanna, that you're meant to lead the kind of work that you do. Uh, can you please take a moment to share your own lived and learned experiences? Certainly. So I am from Trenton, New Jersey. And for those of you who don't know, I like to tell everyone that Trenton is the city that started the nation. And that may be a slight exaggeration, but it is, uh, if any of us remember history, it's where George Washington fought the Battle of Trenton. Mm-hmm. And it is the only, well, one of four state capitals where the governor doesn't lay his head. And I say that to kind of give you a sense of what has now become a blighted city. Mm -hmm. Growing up, it wasn't quite as 
blighted, but it definitely was an urban environment filled with all the issues that urban centers have. You know, poverty, violence, homelessness. And I was fortunate to grow up on a tree-lined street with where everyone knew one another. I have two phenomenal parents who, after 56 years of marriage, they are still on their honeymoon. And they believed that education was a great equalizer. So my mother was a teacher and my dad was a mechanic before he retired. And they sacrificed a lot so my sister and I could go to school in Princeton. And the juxtaposition between Princeton and Trenton, just to give you some sense, I mean, everybody knows Princeton, if only for Princeton University. But when you think about um, zip code and um, people's health outcomes, my street in Trenton, I'm expected to live to the age of 63. And Princeton, you're expected to live to the age of 89. Mm. So that tells you about the difference in environment. So we went to an all-girls school and we thrived. And that was my first entree into equity and racism, quite frankly. Being the only, being uh, forced to look at things in a very different way. And I you know, continued on and of course went to college. I went to a historically black college and, um, and quickly came back to New Jersey to, because I found the love of my life and I've been married to him for 26 years and we have a daughter. And those are the two most important roles that I have being a mother and a wife. Um, but my career, my professional career has taken me on lots of twists and turns but always at the center of my world has been race and racism. And I say that because my father is of mixed race. My mother fought actively in the civil rights movement and it's always been a topic of our dinner table. And even in my own experience, I remember my husband and I we had been married for probably less than a year and I'm an asthmatic. And I remember going into a local hospital in the middle of the night in jeans. I mean, it was the middle of the night, you know, we weren't dressed for work. We didn't look like professionals. And the first thing that emergency room doc nurse saying to me was, so hon, do you have any clean veins? Mm. And I remember thinking to myself, all my veins are clean. Mm. And at the time I worked in maternal child health, but, and I could navigate and go and speak to the CEO, but I shouldn't have had to. And I think this continued. And that was really my first insight into the uh, inequity in healthcare. And it continued as I, my husband and I unfortunately lost our first baby as I was working on the governor's first blue ribbon panel on black infant mortality. And so between my lived experience, from childhood on up through working across various sectors, housing, maternal child health planning, uh, education, and just social service programs and health. It really has led me to this point that I'm at now to really add a different perspective, looking at policy, looking at programs, looking at health and the social sector and how they're braided together. So 
I like to tell people, I don't have to work every day. I get to passion every day because truly this is where my heart is and um, where I think I can make a difference. Uh, Deanna, as I listen to your story, do you think it's important for those organizations that are looking to solve for social disparities and health equities or even, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, just to name a few that, that it's important that the individual that leads these efforts has lived the effort. I don't know that the individual who leads it needs to have lived the effort because I'm thinking about our organization and around the table, there's individuals of all backgrounds, but you definitely need people around the table who have lived and learned experience. Because I think there's huge importance in allies. Because if it was up to black and brown people to end racism, we would have done it a long time ago. We would have said, we are over this, we're gonna stop it today. But it takes everyone to end racism. It needs, because there's times when other people can speak up when I can't. When I'm in a meeting and there's someone who overspeaks me, there's someone who um, speaks down to me, even when I have more experience, more education, a valid point, and it's glazed over, I need perhaps a white male counterpart to say, well, did you hear what Deanna said? And while that shouldn't be the case, mm. it is the case right now. So how we use one another and how it becomes a part of the um, full journey forward, I don't know that it needs to be led um, by someone who is a um, underrepresented minority, but it definitely needs to have diverse opinions around the table. Well, you know, thank you for that perspective, because I actually think that most people feel the opposite, but I completely agree with you. And I think this is part of you know, as I listen to your story, I'm learning that more and more people, clearly they haven't had your story because everybody's story is different, but they've had a story that might intersect with yours. And the point is that collectively, collectively, we all have the lived and shared experiences to get out in front of these issues. So thank you for sharing your story and um, really setting the tone for our conversation today. And, you know, when you think about, you know, RWJ Barnabas Health, I mean, the mission is to create healthy communities. Why is uh, the focus not solely on patient and clinical care in its pursuit? You know? Because I think that it used to be, you know, probably eight years ago, and we're a young system, we are five years old and we are um, as a result of several mergers. And it used to be basic, based on clinical care. And there was a realization that we needed to expand the definition of health. You know, as a country, the US spends a lot of money on healthcare and we are sicker, than many of our other developed nations. So we need to expand the definition to think about social and behavioral factors. 
and environmental factors or what is now known as social determinants of health. When we understand that 80% of all health outcomes are due to social factors, hunger, um, housing insecurity, racism, uh, your economic status, your education, all of those things, then we cannot ignore them. So five years ago, we really took a look at instituting more social programs into our care. And then we, two years ago, we took a deeper dive to really integrate social factors into the clinical setting with the intent that at some point in the near future, every patient that comes through our doors will be screened for social factors because we understand that we can no longer give a diabetic a medication that says take with food if in fact we don't understand can you afford food or even if you're more affluent do you know how to prepare healthy foods are you running from dance school to soccer to piano and only grabbing fast food mm. Um, which is, again, a part of my story. Um, I was 120 pounds heavier 15 years ago, and I have resources. But just because of life circumstances, I was not eating what I needed to eat. The correlation between stress and diet and lack of sleep, just it was beyond me. And therefore, I, I gained weight and I needed to, to get it off. So I think really putting all of those things together, because if we don't and we don't ask people the right questions, they will wind up back in the emergency department. So expanding the definition of health is really what we chose to do. Well, it, it's clear from your from your answer that um, the argument could be made that racism uh, can be described as a public health crisis. Would, would you agree with that? It is definitely a public health crisis. And in November of 2020, RWJBH declared itself an anti-racist organization because we recognize that racism plays such an important role in health outcomes as well. We know that the continual systemic racism adds to an individual's stress. Um, we know that constant fight or flight, so allostatic load, leads to um, women losing their babies. We know that historic racism has led to depressed neighborhoods, which has then led to food deserts, which has then led to um, food insecurity and things like diabetes, heart disease, depression. So all of these things can and there's diagrams that directly lead us to health disparities. And then when you look even at the flip side of it, you can look at unintentional errors or safety errors in healthcare. And we know that the majority happen to people who are black and brown. So as we seek to move forward in healthcare, unless we fix racism, we will not be healthier as a country. So, so is it, are you implying that unless we solve for racism, we can't create healthy communities? That is exactly what I'm implying. Um, we can't. I think there's 
such a, a, a gap and such inequity mm-hmm. in how people are treated, mistrust on both sides. Um, and there's study after study after study that shows where racism has affected health outcomes. Mm-hmm. We know that when there is um, concordant race concordance and language concordance between patient and clinicians, people have better outcomes. But we also know that the number of black clinicians in this country is 5%, even though we make up 15% of the population. We know that health outcomes are improved when people receive care in their own language, but we know that translation and interpretation doesn't happen. When we talk about individuality, if, I, if lingu- English was not my first language and I leave the hospital, there's currently not systems in place where immediately I can receive my discharge papers mm. in my preferred language. I mean, there's definitely uh, translated materials yeah. that I can receive, but not those that are specific to Deanna Minus Vincent. We do our best to get them translated in a day or a day and a half or two days. But if I have to clean my wound or take medications, a day and a half might be too long. I mean, infection can already set in. So we have to think about these things. I mean, those all lead to poor health outcomes. And it's been 25 years since I've worked in maternal child health. And we were trying to solve for this then, you know, not pulling in um, a frontline worker or not translating a woman's OBGYN issues through her 12-year-old son because the mother doesn't want to talk to her 12-year-old son and use him. And the son does not want to talk about his mother's uh, reproductive issues um, with the doctor. I can almost guarantee that. Um, But we still do it. Even though there are machines that can do it, it's not as streamlined as it could be. So we've moved to handhelds, making sure that we could do it in everyone's pocket. Everyone has a cell phone in this country. Everyone, most people have a smartphone. So making sure it's easier, streamlining those types of processes, um, making sure that someone's language preferences are right up front on their electronic health record in case we need to make snap decisions about their care. Because we would never want, if I were on the uh, operating table, for my doctor to come out and have to speak to my husband who only speaks German to come out and speak in English when he only has a split second to make a decision about my life. You know, Deanna, as I listen to you, um, and you've made this so clear, this is why these types of conversations are so important. But what I'm taking away is that we've been pushing personalized care, patient centricity for years. And it appears that um, maybe we're only that way with certain populations, not all. Yeah, because I think not everyone thinks about things that aren't right in front of them. Yep. It has to happen to you. 
It has to be a part of your reality. You have to have gone with your grandmother or you have to have been a victim of maltreatment or you have to know someone. I think as we have started this process, it's just been really enlightening as we've gone down and our effort is ending racism together. And we started with courageous conversations just because for some people, you know, talking about race has just been really hard. It's, you know, you, you say, um, well, what does so-and-so look like? Well, he's tall. He has glasses. Like they would never say he's black. So just getting people to say black and, and having these conversations has been really eye-opening. And that's been a part of the journey and a part of the process and really understanding what racism looks like in our system, in our communities, talking to the CEOs of our hospitals, to our um, dietary, our security, and on all levels to understand. And the most eye-opening was really when colleagues said, white colleagues said, I didn't know. I didn't know that it was that bad, or I didn't know what black and brown people experienced. And I think my, when I, one of my responses was, and I really wasn't trying to be flipped, my biggest aha moment was that you didn't know. Yeah. So you may not have known, you may not have known that when I go to the grocery store, if I'm in jeans, I get treated badly by the clerk. Like they treat me like just terrible. Um, I mean, because they don't know my title. They don't know my education. They don't know what kind of car I drive and it doesn't matter. Um, but you do know that I make less than my peers. Either you don't know or you don't care. So I think they may have thought that maybe once every 10 years I get called the N-word. But they didn't know the daily, the daily stress that it causes. Hmm. And I think that was eye-opening. And I don't think that they knew how it wears on um, people or what our frontline teams experience, you know, um, when patients say, I don't want to be served by that black nurse or that black um, individual. Um, so we've really started putting in place policies to change those sorts of things. So for instance, um, we created a policy where no patient can choose a care provider on the basis of physical characteristics. So you can't say, I don't want a black nurse. Um, of course, for religious reasons, they can choose on the, the basis of gender. But um, if in fact someone says, you know, I need you to speak English or I, I don't want you because you're a certain color, we explain our policy and if they still feel that way, if they're able to be transported, they can go to another facility. But racism does not have a place in our system. Deanna, I, I didn't expect to go here, but given what you're saying, I, I, I think people are probably thinking about this as they're listening to you. How can we create healthy communities without embracing human dignity? Because I almost feel that we just keep suppressing individuals at a rate that's making us even more unhealthy than we already were. I mean, how do we 
I mean, what, where in this equation is we need to solve for human dignity? I think we have to figure out the barriers we're, we're up against. We need to make sure people are bought in um, because, I mean, we are the largest healthcare system in the state of New Jersey and we are the largest private employer and we have different opinions, right? There's some people who don't believe that racism exists at all. And, and our CEO has been clear that this may no longer be the place for them. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, as we start to change and, and grow and explore where we're going, But I think as we think about dignity and respect, because I do agree with you, maybe people don't say, okay, well, I haven't been racist or, but even if you just treat people with respect or the way you want to, you know, the golden rule, treat people the way you want to be treated. But I think you have to take the blinders off and you also have to realize what constitutes disrespect. So we've spent a lot of time on things like microaggressions. What are microaggressions? Where might you be offending me? Something that may not, you may not find offensive. Um, you know, when you say, uh, my, Danny, you're so articulate. You're not like others. Other what? What am I not like other? Am I not supposed to be articulate? Of course, I went to college. I have a graduate degree. I'm pursuing my doctorate. Of course, I'm supposed to be articulate. Um, so, so knowing that that's offensive, knowing, so I think learning, it is a constant, constant learning of what, and being open about what you don't know. Uh, we're in the process of changing our holiday policy or looking at it so that people take the holidays that are most meaningful to them. And there were things that I didn't know about Islam. So I had to call some of my colleagues and say, okay, well, how do you know when Eid or the lunar, how do you know exactly when the holiday is? But I had to be vulnerable and say, I don't know. So I think in order to get to dignity, we have to know what the problem is and be vulnerable. And I don't know that everyone is ready to do that. Well, speaking of vulnerability, um, as you well know, uh, Deanna, many companies have stepped up since the pandemic. You know, they had pledges signed, you know, decrees made. And what steps has uh, RWJ Barnabas Health made to make a real commitment um, in given the, the, the social inequities in this country? Or do you think that a lot of these things are just lip service? What are your thoughts? So we have taken real steps. As I said, we, we committed in November of 2020. We have a board committee, which is relatively unheard of for, for us. Um, we, of course, we have board committees, but to take a day-to-day uh, -day function and create a board committee for it was was rare. So we have a board committee that is looking at social justice and, and ending racism. We have a steering committee that is led by our, um, that is chaired by our president and CEO. And I have the good fortune to um, lead this effort for the system. And 
we have defined four goals. The first is around our patients and our clinical care, that patients have the right to receive anti-racist care. Uh, the second is around our workforce hmm. to really look at everything from the time someone is recruited until the time they leave. The third is around our community. And the fourth is around our operations, all of those departments that bolster the three others. And we have uh, individuals who lead each of these goals for us, and we've created priority initiatives. So around our clinical care, it's very much the things you would think of, disparities. Um, so cancer, diabetes, um, areas that we need to stretch. And we know that there are uh, disparities between um, people of color and um, individuals in the majority. Um, also making sure that we're recruiting clinicians of color for all the reasons I spoke of. Also making that link between safety and ending mm -hmm. racism, because we've been on a journey towards HRO, so high, being a high reliability organization to prevent safety issues. And how do we make sure that they are in tandem? So making sure, so speaking up for safety, closing the power dynamic. Um, so for instance, in an operating room, can a, um, a medical assistant tell a surgeon, maybe you forgot to do something. So mm -hmm. making sure that everyone speaks up for safety and the same is true for racism we have to close that power dynamic. Um, as far as the employees, you know, we've taken a great deep dive. Anyone who knows me knows I'm data-driven. I, I am a data geek. So we've done discovery on all of these things and we've done a dive in our employee um, disciplinary actions. And what we found was 20% of our population is black, but 40% of our disciplinary actions have been black. Mm. And People get put on a list where they can't be hired in the system ever again, not just one of our hospitals, all of our hospitals wow. for infractions such as being late three times. And that prevents someone from their livelihood. And so really looking at those sorts of things and buying from small minority uh, women owned businesses and how do we really build accountability around that so that we can build local communities and make sure they're sustainable and that they thrive, especially after COVID and so many stores are shuttered. And then looking at um, how we market, do our ads look like the people in the community? Are they just um, biracial people as opposed to people with darker skin? Are the languages those languages that we speak? So we've been doing a lot of work and not just programming, but policy change and not just policies that are racial policies, every policy. We will audit every policy because that's how you change systemic racism. So, so Deanna, how, you know, as we start wrapping this up, for someone that decided to listen or watch this podcast and this information uh, at a high level, they've seen it all over the news, but have finally stepped in to learn more about it. In other words, for someone who's just, on the journey of learning more about these issues. How can you simplify this for them? What role can they play? 
I think learn every day. Learn, either be an advocate or an ally. And look at yourself in the mirror and see what you can do to make your corner of the world better. And if you work for an organization and you recognize that perhaps there's room for you to get better, then see how you can employ some tactics in your organization. I mean, I am a huge believer. And the reason why I started doing this work was because, as I said, my mother was a um, in the civil, you know, fought in the civil rights movement. And she was distraught that her grandchildren were fighting the same fight. And I made a promise after George Floyd and COVID had so many um, policies that were inequitable. I said I would fight the small fights with the same vigor so that we wouldn't see Trayvon Martin. And then, you know, we would get lackadaisical and we would see all these fights and then get lackadaisical. But if in fact, one day when um, my daughter has a family and, and I have grandchildren, that they can fight different fights because I will not leave them to fight these same fights. So anything in my power. So I just implore people to look at themselves and try to make change. Look, at, find out what microaggressions are. If you see one, change it and just continue to learn. Deanna, you know, this work that you're doing is so admirable, but it's also exhausting. <laughs> How do we pace ourselves? Because in, the, in our journey to create speed around this, we need to create a pace so that we can respect the progress that's being made. How do you pace yourself? What would you advise one of your peers that's starting to get tired? That's a really hard question for me to answer, Glenn, because I don't, I don't know how to do that. But um, definitely we celebrate the, win, the, the small wins. We, we do that. And I think recognizing and being patient that change takes time and it takes work. It does take longer than I would like, um, but my peers slow me down. Um, but you need to make change that is sustainable. You need to make sure the policy is right. So as we're changing policies, you don't want to rush it so that it is not right and you're, you're not making the change that will last and the change that will help the most people in the end. So it may take months and months of review and rewrite months, you know, back and forth. But that is the process. It we have been in this place and space for over 400 years. We're not going to change it in four minutes or four days or four hours or four months. So it, it's not a quick process. And I think even in speaking to our teams, who said, well, what have you done? You know, what's been done? And I try to temper expectations by saying, you know, it, it's not going to change overnight. You may see some wins and we try to create some wins, but it, it's not going to change overnight. Deanna, I think you answered the question perfectly. <laughs> and your answer was when you go, when you start the journey, solve it the right 
way. Even if it takes longer than you had anticipated, because you get exhausted when you realize that, well, you may have taken a few shortcuts that takes you five steps back. But if you solve it the right way from the beginning, you actually step by step, you start stitching the moments together and you're actually start building momentum that's measurable. So I think you answered it perfectly. And I think that in the end, you know, what you've done for us today is give us hope. Uh, you've given us uh, clarity, uh, not just around the issues, but just how hard this is. And that, you know, I, as I often say, I mean, knowing something's right isn't enough to start doing what's right. And knowing something's wrong isn't enough to stop doing it. And I think we really need to, you know, regardless of the color of our skins, we need to really look at ourselves in the mirror and ask the big question that you started us with. How do we build healthier communities? And I think you've articulated that very, very well, uh, because um, today we need them more than ever before. And I think without them, then things become very challenging to sustain. So uh, I greatly appreciate your time and your insights. And, and I'd like to share this with all of our listeners and viewers that uh, you're going to be able to hear more from uh, Deanna at, at the Leadership in the Age of Personalization Summit on October 21st. Um, uh, and so I really appreciate your dedication to uh, this movement, this conversation, um, and it's just beginning. And the good news is, is that there is a lot of progress being made, uh, but because we've had to take the time to do things right, Sometimes it doesn't feel like there is, but thankfully there's leaders like you who have uh, dedicated yourselves to making sure that, um, that we get out in front of this before circumstances force their hand. Uh, Deanna, thank you so much for your time today. You've been wonderful. Thank you. And as we close the show every week, when you lead in the age of personalization, you will see things that others don't. Do what others won't and keep pushing when prudence says quit. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution.